The sermon's text for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you for who you are, great and mighty and merciful and also at times severe. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, as we deal honestly with the Scripture this morning. I pray that you would help us to see you for who you are. You have commanded us, Lord, above all things, to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And if we're to love you, Lord, we must know you as you are, not as we want you to be. And so some aspects of who you are are difficult to grasp and difficult to deal with, and they're uncomfortable. But they're in the Word of God, and we have to deal with them. And we want to deal with them. Lord, we want to know you for who you are. So I pray that you would help us today, Father. I pray that you would help me as I speak. I pray that you would cause me to be bold and humble at the same time. I pray that I would not hold back anything that the Word of God teaches us, that I would, without fear, proclaim the whole counsel of God to the church. And yet I pray that I would be humble and broken over my own sin and my own weakness. And I pray that I would be deeply grateful that in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God has been removed from me. And I pray that you would help all of us, Lord, as we soak these things in this morning. I pray in Jesus' name that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would convince us that these things are true. Lord, the night I got saved, you said some very difficult things to me in the book of John. You told me I was a liar, and you told me that I was a child of the devil because of the way that I was walking. And by your grace, I believed it, and I was saved. And so, Lord, you have a way of helping us deal with difficult things and making them redemptive. And I pray that you would do that this morning, Lord. Again, Father, at the end of the day, we just want to know you for who you are. And we want to worship you for who you are. We want to love you for who you are. So I pray now, as we behold the kindness and severity of our Father, that you would help us. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our God and our rock and our redeemer. And it is in the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ that we pray all these things. Amen. Last week we talked about Ephesians chapter 5 verses 3 through 4, which say this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. In other words, don't even let these things be on your lips, much less in your lives. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Exchange the immorality of this world for the thanksgiving and the praise of God and let it be found often on your lips, is what Paul is saying. Before we came to know Christ, the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following in the course of this world. We were just caught up in the wave of the behavior of this world. We were under the dominion of Satan, the Bible says. And worst of all, by far... We were children of wrath. We were people who rightly deserved the wrath of God upon us like the rest of mankind. That's Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We were separated from Christ Jesus who created all things. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. And we were without hope and without God in the world. That's Ephesians two twelve. We were darkened in our understanding. We were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance of God that was in us due to our hardness of heart. We were callous and we had given ourselves up to sensuality. We were greedy to practice all forms of impurity. That's Ephesians 4:18 through 19. It was not right for us before we were in Christ to be sexually immoral or impure or covetous, but at least it made sense. At least before we were in Christ, it fit with who we were because we had no hope in God. We had no knowledge of God. We were darkened in our understanding. And if you don't have God, frankly, what else is there? The best thing that this world seems to offer if there's no God is sexuality and greed. What else is there? So before we knew Christ, at least it made sense for us to give ourselves to these things. But now that the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ has begun to dawn on us, now that the sunshine of Christ has lifted over the horizon of our lives by His mercy, now that we are receiving the superabundant mercy of God in Jesus Christ and have been made alive with Him and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places, friends, it just doesn't make sense anymore for these things to be found on our lips and found in our lives. Now that God Almighty has become our Father, and He has declared to us that we who are in Christ are His beloved children, and all the affection He has for Jesus Christ is poured out on us, it just doesn't make sense anymore for us to give ourselves to the various lusts of the world. The only thing that makes sense for those of us who are in Christ is for the praise of Christ to flow up out of our hearts and out of our mouths and to be constantly found on our lips. The only thing that makes sense for those of us who have caught a glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is to adore Him 
and love Him and to be deeply, deeply thankful for what He has done for us in Christ. As David said in Psalm 33.1, which we looked at last week, he said, Praise befits the righteous or the upright. Praise fits the upright. It looks right on them. It's beautiful on them. Praise in the lips of the upright look like an ornate, finely crafted dress on the body of a bride. It just looks beautiful. It looks right. And David tells us in the rest of that psalm why this is so. And basically it's because God is so great. And if you had eyes to glimpse Him, it only makes sense that praise should befit your lips. Specifically, he tells us that God's Word is right and true and that God is faithful in all that He does. He tells us that God loves righteousness, that He loves justice, and that the earth is filled with the steadfast love of the Lord. There are a lot of people who look at this earth and don't see the steadfast love of God, but the truth is, it's everywhere. His mercy is being poured out upon the just and upon the unjust today. David says that by His words, God created the heavens and He created the earth. He created this big, bright sun that's shining through the skylight now. And He totally rules over everything in the universe. David says that God rules over the nations and that no one or nothing can thwart His purposes. He's great and greatly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. David says that the eyes of the Lord are upon those who fear the Lord, and He does good for them. He works on their behalf. He delivers them in their time of need. Maybe He doesn't do it in their timing, and maybe He doesn't do it in their way. But the Lord hears the prayers of the righteous, and He works on their behalf. God is great and greatly to be praised and therefore David says we ought to wait in hope for Him and our hearts ought to rejoice in Him. God is great, friends. And if you have been granted eyes to see even a glimpse of the greatness of His glory, the only thing that makes sense for you is for praise and thanksgiving to rise up from your heart and out of your lips. Praise befits the upright. Praise befits those who have seen anything of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And for us to be sexually immoral or impure or covetous or foolish or crude or anything like that is like that bride dressed in her best wedding dress just jumping headlong into a puddle of mud. just doesn't make any sense. Brides and their dresses were not meant for the mud. And Christians and our mouths were not meant for immorality. And so Paul bids us, put these things far, far, far away from yourselves and let the praise of God be on your lips. It's a fruit of the sign that you have eyes to see Jesus Christ. That's a summary of last week's sermon. And now for this week, I want to meditate with you on verses 5 and 6. And as we do that, I want us to see just how high Paul raises the stakes with these things. Because I think Paul could not possibly have raised the stakes any higher. And I want us to see that, and I want us to feel it. Friends, what we're going to talk about today are things not just to be perceived with the mind. They're to be felt with the heart. And I've been praying for you for days and for myself that we would in an appropriate way 
feel the weight and the glory of the things that we're going to talk about today. That's why I entitled the sermon, borrowing from the language of Romans 11.22, Behold the kindness and the severity of your Father. I say Father because if you are in Jesus Christ, then God is no longer a distant deity for you. God is your Father. And you are His son or you are His daughter. And He deeply and intimately loves you. So the point of the text today, the point of this sermon today, is to give us eyes to see our Father as He is. I say severity because even though our God is indeed slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, even though, as it says in Ephesians 2.4, that He is rich or really better translated, super abundant in mercy. And He's kind and He's patient and He's gentle. Even though He is wanting everyone to come to repentance and that's why He hasn't come to judge us even now. Even though all those things are true, friends, someday the mercy of God will come to an end and the judgment of God will come and we will all answer for our lives. And for those who are not in Christ, wrath will be poured upon you. And our Father is severe at times. He's severe. And that's why I use the word. I say kindness because even though our Father's wrath is horrible and even though His mercy someday will come to an end for those who do not believe in Christ anyway, God has made a way of escape. And the reason He warns us about His wrath is so that we won't have to endure it. I promise you this morning, every single one of you is not here on accident. God has brought you here. And if you are here, He is trying to warn you away from the wrath to come. And therefore, He is very, very, very kind to you. And I want us to see both the kindness and the severity of our Father and love Him as He is, not as we want Him to be. So with that, please look with me at verses 5-6 through and let's read those. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I want to think with you today about the warning that Paul is issuing here about the certainty that He wants us to have in this warning. And then finally, I'll say a few words about the hope that I think is implicit in this warning. So first of all, the warning, and here's here's how I would summarize it. Everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or covetous will go to hell. That's the warning. Everyone who lives a sexually immoral or impure or covetous life will go to hell, and hell is eternal. I see that in two places. First of all, I see it in verse 5 when Paul says that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. And the question we have to ask is, what does Paul mean by inherit the kingdom of Christ and God? What does he have in mind that will be inherited here? And I think that actually the best answer is not in Ephesians, although we could look in Ephesians, and I think Paul answers that question there, but probably one of the clearest answers in the New Testament is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And you can either look up there or turn there with me. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So if we could just work back through this together. According to the great mercy of God, God has caused every Christian to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And essentially what that living hope is, is the inheritance of the kingdom of God, which is imperishable, which is unfading, which is unsullyable, and it's being kept in heaven for us by God. So there's a sense in which we have inherited Christ already, and there's a sense in which our inheritance is still being kept for us in heaven. The already and the not yet. And between now and then, God is guarding us through our faith in Him until the day when He causes us to inherit that inheritance. In other words, God is causing you to believe in Him so that you'll be kept in Him and so that you will inherit Him. And I say it that way because I think that the heart of the inheritance of the kingdom of Christ is God Himself. There are many things that will be inherited in heaven. Many things. But the main thing, by far, is God Himself. Revelation 21, 1-8. through John says that he saw a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And he describes something of that vision. It's a glorious thing that God has done. Everything that he describes culminates, in my view, in verse 7 with these words. The one who conquers, or in other words, the one who overcomes or endures, will have this heritage. He will have this inheritance. And I will be His God, and He will be my Son. Beloved, the great hope of the inheritance of the kingdom of Christ in God is that you will get God forever. You will be His people And He will be your God. And there will be no interruption at all in your communion with Him. In your fellowship with Him. You will have eyes that will literally, actually see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm reading that book right now by John Owen called The Glory of Christ. And it's just such a sweet book. And he talks about how now we see His glory by faith, mainly through the Bible then we will see His glory for real. Visibly see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's your inheritance. We will have ears to hear truth from God and we will love it. We will relish in it. We will have mouths to taste purely the goodness of the Lord and we will want more and more and more and more. We will have hearts and wills that have great affection for God, and that want to do everything that God commands. There's not a commandment from God that will be burdensome to you in heaven. You will love what the Lord your God commands you. You will be in perfect communion with God in heaven. And beloved, that is the great hope of the inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. You will get God. You will hope in God. You will have peace with God. You will have fellowship and affection for God. That is why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, that the Holy Spirit that's given to all of you right now, if you're believers, 
is given to you as a deposit that's guaranteeing for you the hope that you have in heaven until you acquire it. In other words, the deepest, sweetest, richest communion you have now with God is nothing more than a foretaste. It's nothing more than a down payment on what is waiting for you then. It's amazing what God has prepared for those who love Him. In fact, the Bible says it's unfathomable. It's unknowable. Now, if this is what is meant by inheriting the kingdom of Christ and God, then I cannot imagine but that when Paul said those who are sexually immoral and impure and covetous will not inherit it, he meant to say that they will go to hell. I don't know what other option there is. If you don't inherit fellowship with God in heaven, what else is there? There's only one thing. And that's being banished from the presence of God. And, and that is hell. That is hell. And so that's the first place where I see that I think Paul is literally warning us, those of us who give ourselves to that way of life, and oh, how we are tempted to do that in this culture, you will end up in hell if you do that. The second place I see this warning is in verse 6, where Paul says, because of these things, the things that he has just named, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And what is hell except for the ever-enduring wrath of God being poured out on the disobedient, especially those who would not believe in Jesus Christ? So friends, I have thought about this for weeks, and I just see no way around the idea that Paul is warning us that those who give themselves to these things will end up in hell. Now, I don't think that Paul is referring to people who are believers and who occasionally fall and sin in these particular ways, but when they sin, they're broken over their sin, they hate their sin, they confess their sin, they're trying striving with the strength of Christ to let go of their sin, I don't think that that's the kind of person Paul has in mind. If you are in a great battle with sin right now, it's probably a good sign that you even care. I think that Paul is referring to people who consistently and habitually practice these things with no remorse, no repentance, and no design to permanently cut their sin off. Okay, in other words... I think he's talking about people who may even seem religious and who may even say that they hate their sin, but the truth is they don't hate their sin. They're giving themselves to their sin all the time. They love it. They're indulging in it. They love it more than they love Christ. I think that's the kind of person that Paul has in mind. I think, as John Calvin thought and wrote in his commentary on these verses, he said Paul is employing such harsh language in order to tear from our hearts the view that we can be friendly with these sins and still inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot be friends with these sins and with God. As Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. So we cannot do that. Every single person who makes friendly with these sins, who makes a life of these sins, I believe, Paul is saying, will go to hell. I think that that is his clarion warning for us today. And so, beloved, I implore you, I plead with you, do not play with sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness. Everywhere you go, as soon as you step out of these doors, everywhere you go, these things will be there to tempt you. As I said a few weeks ago, even at the gas station, we go to the holiday down in Rogers, and they've got TV screens now on the gas pumps. 
And on those gas pumps, sometimes there are things that I don't want my eyes to see. Everywhere you go, you will be tempted with these things. Please, please, I plead with you, don't play with them. They're more serious than you think they are. In the moment when you give in to these things, generally the kind of train of thought is, ah, that's not such a big deal. That's not so bad. It's worse than you think it is. And the consequences for these things are much more dire than you think they are. So please, in Jesus' name, I implore you, don't play with them. Do not play with them. By the way, Paul is not the only one to link the warning of hell and indulging in sexual immorality. In fact, there was one much greater than Paul who made the same warning, and that was Jesus Christ himself. If you'll turn with me quickly to Matthew 5.27. This will also be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible today. But I want you to see what Jesus said. You've probably thought about one part of what Jesus said here. I'm not so sure that everybody has thought about the other part. He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Most people get that as the main point of what Jesus is saying. Lust isn't just what you do, it's the condition of your heart. But I wonder if you've ever really noticed where he goes next. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For what reason? For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Next he says, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Why? For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Friends, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, full of grace and truth, said, if you give yourselves to these things, you will eventually end up in hell. That's as serious as it gets. It cannot be more serious than that. And if you don't believe Jesus about that, you can't believe Jesus about anything. Either everything He said is true, or nothing He said is true. There's no, there's no middle ground. I believe that what Jesus said is true. So let us tremble. Let us not underestimate the seriousness of these things. And the reason they're so serious, as I said last week, is because sexual immorality and greed are in the end tantamount to idolatry. They're tantamount to worshiping false gods. Sexuality and greed both are turning away from the one true God and making a God of our pleasures and making a God of the things that we think can give us pleasure. Either other people or material possessions or money or whatever. And we make a mockery of the beauty of the design of what God has created for sexuality and for material possessions. God thought of sexuality. It's a beautiful thing. It's a great thing. But when you twist it, you commit idolatry. When you twist it, you worship a false god. And same thing with material things. The Bible says God has given us all things to enjoy. All these things that we're using here, they're for our joy. This is good. But when you make a god out of them, you completely bastardize what it is that God has designed in them. And because they are like Worshiping false gods, if we don't repent, one day God will totally shut us out from His kingdom if we don't repent. Just like a husband who finally has enough of an unfaithful wife and shuts her out, someday God will shut us out if we do not repent. And so I say to you again, let us behold the kindness and the severity of our Father and let us tremble before Him and let us repent of our sins.
Now, before I go on to talk about the certainty that Paul wants us to have about this warning, I want to make a distinction with you that I think is really, really important. Please listen carefully to this because it's really important that we get this. If we get this distinction that I'm going to make between idle threats and honest warnings, we will see that Paul and God are loving us in introducing or, 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 or giving us this warning rather than being hateful toward us. So this distinction means a lot. First of all, an idle threat. What is an idle threat? It's a person threatening something to another to control their behavior, right? Basically, I'm just saying whatever I have to say to get you to do what I want you to do. So imagine with me two boys out on the playground. They're both playing and they both want the same toy. I bet you the mothers in this room have experienced this before. Can I hear an amen? Two children want the same toy. The one child says to the other, you better give me that toy because if you don't, I'm going to tell your mommy and she's going to be really mad at you and she's going to spank you really hard. Really hard. It's going to hurt. It's going to make your bottom red. What's that person doing? That person, if he indeed told the mom, would probably get spanked himself. He's making an idle threat to control the behavior of the other person and to get what he wants out of the other person. But you see, honest warnings are nothing like that. They're completely opposite from that. They are not coercive tactics designed to control other people's behavior. They're nothing like that at all. Imagine that I'm standing beside a road, and in this road there's a very sharp curve to the left. And just after the curve, there's a bridge that goes over a river. But I happen to know that that bridge has completely collapsed, and anybody that goes around the corner is going to fall into the river and die, because once you make the turn, it's too late. There's not enough time to slow down. So, if anyone goes around that corner, most likely they're dead. It would not be hateful for me in that situation to plead with people as earnestly as I can. In fact, even to yell at them if I have to. To do anything I have to do to get them from, keep them from turning that corner. Because if they turn that corner, they're dead. In fact, the only loving thing I could do is to stand there and try with all my might to warn them away from that corner. It's the only loving thing that I can do. When God warns us away from sexual immorality and impurity and greed by telling us that those who live like that will go to hell, friends, He's not issuing an idle threat. He's giving you a loving warning. The only loving thing that God could do if hell is real, and it is real, is to warn you away from it. The only loving thing that God could do if His wrath is real, and it is real, is to send biblical writers like Paul and to send simple preachers like me to plead with you, please don't give yourselves to these things. Give yourselves to God. The pleasure you're looking for is in God anyway. All these other things are false pleasures. True, everlasting pleasure is in God. And the only loving thing God could do, or Paul could do, or I could do, is to warn you about these things if they're real. And they're real. They're real. Many preachers in our day will not talk about hell anymore. Some of them, in fact, like Brian McLaren, one of the more famous ones, completely deny hell. I listened to something of his on the internet this week, and he completely denies the doctrine of hell. In fact, he calls it uh, false advertising for God is the way he thinks about it. 
Some of them say that preachers like me who will dare to speak about hell are hateful. And that the God we talk about is hateful. But in fact, friends, what I want you to see is that it's just the opposite. They are the ones that are hateful towards you. Because hell is no idle threat. It's a reality. And they will not tell you about it. The wrath of God is no idle threat. It's a reality. It is going to come. And they will not warn you away from it. And so truly, they are hateful towards you. Because friend, believe me, once you turn the corner of death, it's too late for you. If you are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ in your life, it's too late for you. And you will experience the wrath of God. You will fall off the bridge of His mercy into the river of His wrath. And you don't want that. Believe me, you don't want that. So in the end, it's the one who will actually warn you about the wrath to come who loves you. And God loves you, friend. Paul loves you. I love you. And so it is that we warn you honestly. And we plead with you together as it were to heed the loving warning of your Father and turn away from these things as far as you can. For because of these very things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So turn away from them. Number two, let's talk for a minute about the certainty of the warning that Paul is issuing here for us. I think he wants us to understand that this is not some shaky doctrine. And so look there at what he says. He says, for you may be sure of this. You may be sure of this. One of my dictionaries that translated that a little bit more literally, it literally translates from the Greek more like, you know this very well. Or as the NASB translates it, for this you know with certainty. With certainty. One way you could translate these words is, you know that you know. You know that you know these things. And I think what Paul is trying to get here, get at here, is that the doctrine of hell and the doctrine of the relationship between immoral lives and hell, these things are certain doctrines. They are certain doctrines. They are not gray. They are not ambiguous. They do not lack biblical support. They are not subject to a variety of interpretations, at least not before God. Here on the earth, all kinds of hemming and hawing about, I heard a preacher this week say, yeah, Jesus said that, but that's not really what he meant. Here's what he really meant. So thanks for coming along finally after 2,000 years and telling me what Jesus really meant. I think he meant exactly what he said. And I promise you, before the presence of God, no theologian is going to be able to talk his way out of hell. It won't happen. These things are not open to a bunch of interpretations. The simplest person on the earth can read the words and understand what they mean. These things are not up for debate. No scholar, no teacher is going to come along with some new discovery and debunk the doctrine of hell. Certainly they're going to try. Certainly they're going to try. But what I'm saying is, in the end, it's not going to work because the doctrines of hell and the connection between immoral living and hell are real doctrines. These are not idle threats. These are realities. Of this, there is no room for waffling, no room for doubting, because the stakes are just too high. They're just too high. Like I said, once we turn that corner, it's over, man. It's over. It's too late. And I don't want you to turn that corner and not be prepared. This is why Paul says so adamantly, look at the beginning of verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. No one. If Brian McLaren or some other preacher or I myself or an angel from heaven should come and try to teach you another doctrine than these, do not be deceived. Don't let it happen. 
False teachers may come with sophisticated words, and they often do, don't they? Part of the reason they're so persuasive is because they're generally very sophisticated. They may come along with persuasive-sounding words, loving words, sincere words. They may even come across as true believers. But friends, if they're teaching you a different doctrine than these things, they're deceiving you. They're seeking to deceive you, and they're not on your side. So, don't listen to them. Their words are empty, Paul says. Their words have a, a shape, but they have no substance. They're like a water tower that's very tall and holds the promise of quenching the thirst of an entire city. But the truth is that inside the water tower is completely empty. And all who trust in it and continue to trust in it will actually die because it's empty. And same thing with their words. Their words have a shape, they have a form, but they're empty, they're deceitful, and if you trust in them, you will die. So don't let yourselves be deceived. Be on your guard. Yesterday in our membership class at the office, we talked about this how I think that the greatest danger for the flock of Christ today is coming from inside the church, not from outside the church. I'm very concerned about the church of Jesus Christ in our day. A lot of false teaching, and this is one of the main places. People are doing away with a doctrine that is intensely serious. Friend, don't be deceived. Just trust in God. I'm not even asking you to believe me. I'm saying... Read the Bible and believe it. Believe it over the words of men. Believe God over the words of men even when it's uncomfortable and unsettling and difficult to understand and difficult to deal with. Believe God. Believe me, in the end, if you believe God, you will not be disappointed. So cling to Him. Cling to Him. Cling to Him. Behold the kindness and severity of your Father. Be certain about it. Tremble about it. Repent of your sins and believe in Him. Finally, let me just say a few closing words. Just take maybe three or four more minutes and we'll be done for the morning. Let me just talk about the hope that I think is implicit in this warning. And I do think that there's a lot of hope here. If it's true that our Father is warning us about these things because He loves us and because He wants us to flee from them, then that implies that He's made a way of escape. And if He's made a way of escape from His own wrath, that is intensely hopeful and intensely merciful. So if you're in this room today, whether a child or a teenager or an adult, and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, here is the way of escape for you. Believe in Jesus Christ. There is one way to escape the wrath of God, and that is Jesus Christ. So believe in Him today. Believe in Him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9-10 through 10 say this, and this will be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you did what? You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Anyone who dies without Jesus Christ is totally exposed to the wrath of God. Completely exposed. It's like a person walking into a house that's on fire without a fire suit on. You're just totally exposed to the flames. And Paul said in Acts 17.31 that God has fixed a day. He's fixed a day. He's already determined the date and it's as sure as anything can be. That on that particular day He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, that is Jesus Christ, 
And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Unless you measure up to the measure of Jesus Christ on the day you die, if you don't believe in Him, you are totally exposed to the wrath of God. But the hope for you, the hope for you is all it takes to keep you from the wrath of God is to believe in Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate this week what happened on a cross that probably looked a lot like that 2,000 years ago. And what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago is that God poured out wrath on Jesus Christ that belonged to me and that belonged to you. And if we will simply believe in Jesus Christ, all the blessing that belongs on Jesus will come on me and all the wrath that belongs on me will be absorbed in the cross. That's all it takes. Simple belief. It's really that simple. So believe in Him, friend. Believe in Him. God, Paul, I don't want you to know the wrath of God. So believe in Him. That's the hope for you. Just like that. The wrath of God removed from you. Just like that. You become a child of God. And God becomes your Father. And just like that, all of the affection God feels for Jesus Christ, He now feels for you. And how I want that joy for you. And how God wants that joy for you. So I plead with you to believe in Him. If you are a believer here today, and you're struggling with these sins that we've been talking about today, and I don't assume that no one is struggling with these things, in the body of Christ, it's alarming how many people are indulging in pornography and are, in fact, even addicted to pornography, how many business people are living for money rather than God. It's alarming. So I don't assume, even in a small church like this, that nobody is struggling with these things. If you are struggling with these things, friends, there's hope for you because the Bible says God has made a way of escape for you. You are not destined to to live according to these things. The reason I know for a fact that God has made a way of escape for you is 1 Corinthians 10.13. Please just look up here with me. This will be pretty quick. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you're not going through anything unique right now. A lot of people are going through what you're going through. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God always gives you a way out. You are not doomed to follow through on the thing you're being tempted to do. You don't have to do that. Don't believe the devil. Don't believe your flesh. There's a way of escape. And that way is simply faith exercised in Jesus Christ. Just one more quick scripture. 1 John 5, 4-5. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That's the promise for you. You will overcome the world if you're a Christian. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So believer, believe in Him. Believe in Him. You are not doomed to do what you're feeling tempted to do. Believe in Christ. There will be a way of escape. Believe in Him and look to your great Savior and war with His strength to overcome these things. And the promise is, if you're truly in Christ, you will overcome the world. I was thinking this week about a, a guy now who has a ministry helping people come out of sexual addiction. For 15 years, this man was addicted deeply himself. But the Lord delivered him, and now not only has he delivered him, but he's using him as an instrument to deliver other people. That's the power of Christ. And he not only forgives you, but he uses your sin as an instrument of redemption. What an amazing God we serve. 
And all that's yours simply through belief. So believer, believe in Him. Your Father has given you both positive reasons and negative reasons in Ephesians 5 to flee from these things and believe in Him, so do it. Do it, and there will be a way of escape. Behold the kindness of your Father. Behold the severity of your Father and worship Him as He is. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your help this morning. And I thank You for telling us the truth. I love You, Jesus, because You tell the truth. You don't play games with us. You don't bait and switch us. You don't give us the easy stuff today and then nail us with the hard stuff later. You tell us the truth. And I love that about You. I've always loved that about You. In fact, the way that I was saved, as I said earlier, is because you told me some very hard things the moment I met you. And I just love you for that. So I pray, Lord, that anything that I said that was just of me and, and, and the spirit that I had today, if it was not from you, I pray that it would fall away from people's memory. But I pray, Lord, that everything that was said that was of you would have its proper end in our lives, Lord. I pray that You would accomplish what You meant to accomplish in every one of our lives. Father, free us from our flesh. Free us from this world. Free us from Satan, I pray. Free us from Your wrath and cause us to be imitators of God and dearly loved children. Please help us, Father. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. So please come and help us and accomplish everything You meant to accomplish through this message today. We love you, Jesus, and we pray that you would increase our love for you this day. In your mighty and merciful name we pray all these things. Amen.